Pound the Rock is brought to you by the Score Bet. That's right, we brought you the best sports media app. Now we're bringing you the best sports book and casino. Now live in Ontario, the Score Bet offers a safe and secure mobile sportsbook experience with both pregame and in-play markets. But best of all, it's integrated into the Score and our content to give you the easiest and most seamless sports betting experience. Download now on iOS and Android. Available in Ontario only. Must be 19 years of age or older to participate. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call Connects Ontario at 1-866-531-2600. Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I am joined, as always, by fellow co-host Joe Wolfon. What up, Cash? We have a few things to talk about today. As usual, it's the middle of the playoffs, so we are going to get to a couple of the series. We're going to get to the series that aren't being played on Friday night, since we're recording this early Friday afternoon, and we wanted to have a bit of shelf life. So, yeah. we're gonna- by the oh, way, did, did anybody get an explanation for why there was a four-day break for those two series? You know like- what? It, I mean, no, but this is something the NBA has done in the past. Like, it's not that strange for the NBA where... Usually what happens is if if no series in the first round goes seven or if a bunch of series start early in the second round, then there's usually like an extra off day baked into that first week of the second round. Right, so but I'm saying- I wasn't they, as much confused about that, but it is strange that the extra off day was put in between the two series that last played on Tuesday- you know what I mean? So it's like Tuesday to Saturday. And then the series that was that were last played on Wednesday pick right back up Friday. Like you'd think if they were going to find just an extra day to put in there. Yeah. And give both series two days off rather right. than one series three days and the other day one. It makes no yeah. sense. Anyway, Bucks, Celtics and Warriors Grizzlies will be on the docket for us later in the show. A couple things I want to get to first. And we can almost frame it as like good news, bad news in a way or like positive stuff, <laughs> negative stuff in terms of the way we're going to talk about it. First thing, the good news, the positive stuff. Somewhat surprising, I guess. The Clippers and Robert Covington agree to a two-year, $24 million extension that prevents Covington from hitting free agency this summer. Covington probably doesn't get much more than $12 million a year on the open market, and it is only two years. But at, at that cap hit, I think it's a phenomenal deal for the Clippers. Um, Covington gets a bit of security. He's a vet now, too. And uh, to me, it's just like you know what was already a really nice deadline for the Clippers Looks even better now that they've secured Covington for an extra couple of years at a pretty fair rate, if nothing else. Um, and yeah, w- with Covington in and the move for Powell, who we've both talked about, will look especially good on the healthy version of this Clippers team. You start thinking about what this team's going to look like when Kawhi rejoins PG next year, and, and they look set, man. Yeah, I think it's a pretty Covington-friendly deal also. The thing with free agency these days is like every year there are maybe four or five teams that have cap space and a lot of the time those aren't good teams so the rest of the league just has like the mid-level exception to offer like the these not good teams are probably not going to blow their cap space on robert covington so i think he was basically looking at entering the market uh, and looking for a mid-level type of deal and I think that the Clippers met him in the middle and were like, look, we'll go above the mid-level to keep you. I think it's a good deal for both sides. Uh, I love the fit with the Clippers. I 
liked it, you know, from the moment they acquired him. And I think it looked even better in light of how well he played there. And I think it could look even better than that when Kawhi Leonard is back and they get, you know, hopefully a full healthy season from both Kawhi and PG because Covington remains an exceptional team defender. We know about his limitations as an on-ball defender, but the whole point is he's not going to have to do that with this Clippers team when Kawhi and PG are there. Like he can do what he is best at. And it just, there's a clear team building vision with the Clippers right now where like they're very much trying to stockpile these two-way switchable wings who can operate within, you know, a kind of interchangeable defensive system where there's a lot of switching, but also a lot of help and they can play small. They have a a lot of lineup flexibility. So I think Covington slots in there really nicely. And uh, I think the deal will work out well for both sides, but he, he was great uh, after, after that trade for them. So. Okay, so from one LA team uh, that I think is uh, trending upwards to the more historically established LA team that I think is trending anything but upwards, and that's the Los Angeles Lakers. So the newest reports this week were that one, Phil Jackson, according to Adrian Wojnarowski, is quote-unquote significantly involved in their search for a next head coach. The other report, and this one, I, I don't remember where it was from now. I don't have it in front of me. It's not really that surprising, but it is funny to me. And that is that, you know, a big part of the reason Frank Vogel was fired was essentially because of his inability to maximize Russ and the way he utilized Russ. I've got a lot of thoughts about the Lakers. <laughs> I wrote about them today. I just think both these things are further examples of a franchise that, to be quite Frank is becoming a laughingstock, is becoming a joke. I don't really understand how Rob Palenka, who I've mentioned on this show before, is in the conversation for the biggest fugazi in the NBA right now. I don't understand how him and Kurt Rambis, who is their senior advisor, Kurt Rambis, who won four championships as a player with Showtime Lakers in the 80s, how they still have their jobs when you consider the way that they have run this team and the way they have built around LeBron and Anthony Davis. And I know the easy answer is, well, they literally just won the championship two years ago and they've got LeBron and Anthony Davis. But let's be real here. LeBron James wanted to play in LA and and like wanted to go to the Lakers. Anthony Davis followed him there. They were able to get Anthony Davis because of, you know, a lot of picks and young talent that were stockpiled during a time when the Lakers were, were bad under a different regime that was fired by Jeannie Buss. Now, part of that regime was Jim Buss, her brother. She literally fired her brother and Mitch Kupchak, who had won you know multiple championships as an executive there five years ago. And I'm not hating on her for that. If anything, I actually gave all the credit in the world to Jeannie Buss for doing that at the time because that's the kind of probably painstaking decision to make that a lot of people, executives, whatever, sports executive business, probably don't have the stomach to make. And I think the fact that she made that decision then because she did not like where the Lakers were going, was a very good example of the kind of strong stomach someone needs and the reason why the late Dr. Jerry Buss left Jeannie with final say over the Lakers. Like, I thought that's what that decision kind of showed everyone at the time. My question now is like, where has that gumption gone, Jeannie? Like, how do Palinka and Rambis keep their jobs when they have not really done anything better than your own brother who you fired and Mitch Kupchak have? Now, one theory is that 
Linda Rambis is a staunch Palinka supporter. And if you're sitting there thinking, who the hell is Linda Rambis? She's Kurt Rambis's wife, also Jeannie's best friend. Her official role with the franchise is executive director of special projects. But it's been reported by multiple people over the years that she's essentially seen as like a shadow executive because of her influence on Jeannie's decision making. There were also the reports from Bill Orem of The Athletic uh, maybe a month ago, around the time they fired Vogel, that Palinka and Rambis were more kind of hands-on and like encroaching on Vogel than most executives are with coaches around the league. And to that end, they were not just taking part in his film sessions, but also stopping in on what were supposed to be coaches-only meetings. I remind you that Kurt Rambis won 28% of his games as an NBA head coach. So anywhere you look, it just seems like there are too many cooks. Actually, no, I was going to say there's too many cooks in the kitchen. It's one thing to have too many cooks in the kitchen. It's another thing for there to be a lot of people crowded around the stove when none of them are even chefs. There are a lot of voices here, but ultimately it's a rudderless ship. And I've kind of tweeted and joked recently about how the Lakers are reminding me a little of the Knicks in the way that they're almost letting this arrogance about like history or tradition or the big market try to make up for general incompetence. And the usual reply and comeback from people on Twitter, and even yourself when I joked about it in a message to you, was like, come on, they literally just won the championship two years ago. And I do understand that. But the only thing that's keeping the Lakers from being the Knicks or the Kings, like insert whatever franchise that we usually would clown, the only thing keeping them from being that, the only thing keeping purple and gold from looking very blue and orange right now is the fact that, They've got palm trees and beaches outside of Crypto.com Arena. And yes, I fully acknowledge that they they are a legacy franchise in the, the, the destination market in the league. And so they very well could just like flounder away for years and it doesn't matter because they'll, you know, the next great free agent will fall in their laps just like LeBron did in 2018. But I do think that's like a very dangerous game to play because as I mentioned in the post, there's another LA-based team in that same market that has been for the most part, the better run organization for like a decade now. There are other warm weather cities and big markets in the league. And pretty damn soon, we're going to get to a point where incoming draft classes literally aren't old enough to remember the last time the Lakers fielded consistent year after year winners. They can start to change that by, I guess, you know, the, the first step might be hitting a home run in this coaching search. But the way that bus and the Rambuses, the Rambi, as Lakers fans have come to uh, call them, Palenka, Jackson, apparently, maybe LeBron, Davis, Clutch. I don't know. The way they all seem to be running this operation, hitting a home run in the coaching search is going to be tough when the next coach is essentially being sent up to the plate with a, one hand tied behind his back and a blindfold on. <laughs> so, so many metaphors. we got a rudderless ship. We got a bunch of people who can't cook standing around a stove, and now we've got a batter coming to the plate with a blindfold and one hand no, tied behind his back. Think, like, think about it. I'm, I'm being serious when I say that. Like, okay, yeah, is is it a bit of hyperbole to say like they're Nick's West and all that? And sure. And I, I, like I said, I completely acknowledge they might just get another big free agent in a few years once they finally have cap space again, and and this will seem like a silly ramp. But like, I mean, you watch Masai Ujiri's post game conference press conference in Toronto. Like, the Lakers very much are becoming a punchline. And there's still like this air of arrogance emanating from them that really does seem very positively Knicks-ish when you compare it to the way they've actually operated outside of just being a glamour market that attracts free agents. If it were, if like, if it was any other team 
operating this exact same way, these exact same reports coming out, I feel like we would be clowning them like this. And it's like, well, I'm not going to not clown them because they're the Lakers. And it's like, well, they might just get another free agent in a couple of years. Also, I know you mentioned part of the reason they also, you know, eventually got Davis and built to what they have now is because of how well they drafted in comparison to a team like the Knicks. And that's a very valid and fair point. But the regime that did that is pretty much gone now. And even if drafting is part of their um, strengths, which I don't think it might be now with Palinka and Rambis in charge, they don't even control their own first round ba- draft pick until what, 2026 or something like that? Just all in all, I think the Lakers are becoming a joke. And other than the market behind them, I don't really know what saves them anymore. But it's always been the market that saves them. And to your point about, well, if this was any other team operating this way, we would clown them. That's always been the case. And the Lakers are the Lakers. It's good to be the Lakers. And they can weasel themselves out of these tight spots because of the luxuries afforded to a legacy franchise that plays in Los Angeles. So I don't know, man. Like, yeah, it's it's not great business practice, I don't think. But the, this is pretty much always the way that they've been run. Like, cronyism is a huge part of Lakers culture. And, you know, again, I don't think that's a good thing. There seems to be this, like, distrust of people outside the organization. It's very myopic. And, you know, that's without getting into how entangled they now are with the clutch sports machine. But um, as much as, yeah, it feels like a fresh set of eyes from someone outside the organization could do them a lot of good. Uh, that doesn't seem to be the way that they want to operate. They've always had this very sort of, you know, the Lakers are a family and we keep everything in-house type of approach um and that's you know for better or worse i guess because they have won a lot of championships but obviously the last decade uh there have been more downs than ups so all that said i fully expect like Derek fisher or brian shaw to be (laughs) hired as their next head coach um but that's i really have nothing else to say about this because honestly the topic just it doesn't even interest me that much at this point it just is what it is and what will determine how good they are next season is like how healthy anthony davis can be does LeBron still have the juice to like give them something at the defensive end of the floor? Because he did just have a magnificent offensive season as like a 37 year old. Um, And then can they do a better job of filling out the roster on the margins around those guys? But obviously that's going to be really difficult with Russ's albatross contract still on the books. So I don't want to make it seem like, you know, I thought Vogel was perfect last year in coaching that him losing his job. I didn't necessarily think was the egregious thing. It was more so that he lost it and guys like Palinka and Rambis still have it. And then the, you know, the BS reports with him not maximizing Westbrook. It's like, look, Vogel wasn't perfect, but you want him to coach basketball or do magic tricks. Cause I don't know any coach in the world that could make one of the worst volume shooters ever, who also doesn't seem to have any interest in playing defense, moving that much off the ball, or God forbid, moving to the bench. I don't know any coach that can take that guy and maximize him on this team and beside LeBron. So a disaster all around. Anyway, that's enough of that. The Lakers are not still playing because of a lot of the reasons I talked about. Eight teams are still playing. We're going to talk about four of them and two of the series matchups still going. We're going to take a quick break, come back and do that. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. 
Now back to the show. All right, Wolf, on the first of the two series I want to talk about today is Boston-Milwaukee shaping up to be a barn burner. Celtics lose game one, then lose Marcus Smart, and you'd think, obviously, advantage Bucks in game two before the series shifts to Milwaukee. And instead, Boston top-ranked defense on full display again for the second straight game. Their offense picked up a bit more. You wrote a piece about how Grant Williams and Al Horford are flummoxing and swallowing up Giannis. And I think it was a great piece, and I think there's a lot to learn in there about the way the Celtics defend. Before I cede the mic to you so you can cook for a bit on that piece and on your observations and analysis, what I think is so interesting and kind of speaks to how insanely good and just well-equipped the Celtics defense is, is like they were missing the literal defensive player of the year in that game. And then you end up writing about two guys who flummox Giannis, but you're still not talking about the other one of their defensive player of the year candidates in Robert Williams. You mentioned him in the piece, but it's not mainly about him. And it's not really about Jason Tatum, who's obviously a phenomenal defender and more of like that, you know, maybe more of a wing stopper kind of guy. So there's like defensive player of the year, defensive player of the year candidate, you know, potential event, like eventual perennial, maybe all defensive wing type of player. And you're talking about two guys flummoxing Giannis, and you don't have to talk about any three of those guys. If that doesn't tell you just like how damn good this Celtics defense is, I don't know what does. So please, enlighten us now on how Grant Williams and Al Horford are doing to Giannis what they're doing. I'll start by saying it's like a little bit of what those guys are doing and a little bit of what the Bucks and Giannis aren't doing. But first off, like give those guys their flowers. They've been wonderful. And... I think to your point, yeah, like this Celtics defense is absolutely stacked. And I, I the piece wasn't about Robert Williams because I was mainly talking about the guys who have been the on-ball defenders against Giannis, who have kind of had to absorb that initial hit and stay solid and allow the help to be. I mean, this was like the kind of the big adjustment I think they made in game two was to send a, a little bit less help Giannis's way. Because in game one, we talked about it. He had a great game, but he really struggled with his individual offense. Like he scored very inefficiently, but he was able to carve the Celtics up with his passing because they were sending a lot of extra attention his way. They didn't really do that in game two. Like they let those guys kind of deal with him in single coverage a lot of the time, and they did a magnificent job. But Robert Williams, as like a backline helper who's able to meet Giannis at the rim, is still a big part of what's allowed them to slow him down to put some numbers on it Giannis has scored 52 points on 72 total used possessions in the series so far 43 percent true shooting five and a half turnovers per game I'm not saying that's going to continue it like he'll be better but you just don't see defenses do that to Giannis in this day and age. like you, you just don't it doesn't happen very often and the fact that you know the guys who are primarily doing it are soon to be 36 year old Al Horford who was thought dead you know a season and a half ago and is now playing some of the best defense of his career and obviously has like a long history of guarding Giannis in the playoffs knows his tendencies very well makes up for maybe some of the waning foot speed with just like great anticipation sits on Giannis's moves doesn't bite on his pump fakes Grant Williams is just a tank like and this is where you know we can kind of get into what Giannis could do differently because right now he is 
And maybe this was predictable with the absence of absence of Middleton and him not being able to play off of the ball as much. But he and the Bucks have reverted to a lot of this, you know, what I call battering Ram Giannis tendency, where he's initiating a ton of possessions from the top of the floor or sometimes from the post. And it works a lot of the time because he can just go through people. But you can't go through Grant Williams, man. Like the guy is a cinder block on wheels. Like he is able to absorb Giannis's drives without getting knocked off his spot, without conceding any ground. And he still has the agility and the nimble feet to move side to side and sit on Giannis's Euro step. So like you're not going through Grant Williams and you're not going around him. And I think Giannis has kind of played into the Celtics hands in a way by just sort of trying to do that over and over again. Again, huge credit to those guys, but I think there, there are some easy fixes for the Bucks' offense, some of which they did start to explore in the second half of that game too. Even though things are going to remain difficult for the most part without Middleton there, I think there, there are definitely ways that they can make things easier on themselves. One of the things we saw them go to a lot more in that second half was just like empty side dribble handoffs. And you see how the Celtics are guarding it where they don't, want to put two on the ball and they don't want to switch in that situation because they want to keep Horford and Grant Williams on Giannis as as much as possible. So those guys are staying attached to Giannis off of those dribble handoffs. They're not showing any help to that shooter coming off the DHO and they're having the on-ball defender chase over top. That means like the backline help needs to be there and, and it wasn't like it just wasn't there early enough on a lot of those plays and those guys like uh Wes Matthews Grayson Allen, Pat Connaughton, all of them got layups, like pretty clean layups, just coming off of DHOs and going all the way to the rim in that game. So I think the help will be better for the Celtics in those situations, but I also think that's a pressure point. Like that's something that the Bucks can use to actually make the Celtics defense uncomfortable. And you lose Middleton's pick and roll chops, but those hand those dribble handoffs basically function as pick and rolls. They just do so in a way that mitigates those guys' lack of ball handling ability. As far as like, if you want to have Giannis initiate, set some more screens for him, man. And like yeah. set those screens at like the free throw line where it's really difficult for the defender to go under those screens because then Giannis is just going to be at the rim if you try to go under, right? Like they- this is a conversation we've had like at times over the last couple of years when Giannis is the initiator, getting him into spots and, and running plays or actions for him that can get him initiating from like different areas of the floor instead of the same predictable spots. And I feel like at least early in this series, it feels like a bit of like the old Bucks, the pre-championship Bucks, where they did have these tendencies to get predictable with where and how Giannis initiated the offense. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to see more like have have Grayson Allen set like a flat screen for him at the elbow, right? And see how the Celtics defend that. Because if you want to try and put two on the ball in that situation to wall up as best you can, you got Grayson Allen who can fly off of that pick and flare out to the three-point line, right? Like that's that's how you can hurt it. Or you just like Giannis has enough momentum going downhill and the screen defender is going to be a little guy and he's going to be a lot more difficult to stop going to the rim. Just like fewer ISOs, probably fewer post-ups because I think that the adjustment the Celtics made to not double those post-ups was a good one. Also, I, I think there were times when they had the right idea in terms of things they were trying to run and the execution just wasn't there. Uh, like there was a possession in the fourth quarter where they ran an empty side pick and roll with Holiday and Giannis, which generally I think is like a good idea. That's the kind of stuff that you should be running. But 
their weak side spacing was terrible. Like all three of those guys were just like bunched up in the corner. And instead of running it on like the far wing, they ran it from the top of the floor. So what ended up happening is Rob Williams just like slid over from the corner. And like those two Celtics players were able to zone up the three Bucks players really easily because of how bunched up they were. So Giannis just ended up rolling right into Rob Williams with literally nowhere to pass the ball. So I think stuff like that where it's like, okay, you have the right idea, just like figure out the mechanics of this play a little bit better and things should go smoother for you. I I also think probably we will or should see less of the three big lineup just because I think that's making that's making things more difficult for Giannis. Like Brooke Lopez's offense is a little bit rough right now. We talked about this last episode, like the Celtics are treating him as a total non-shooter, probably more Giannis at center lineups to, to open things up. And we, we did see some of that in game two. In the first half, that was he was out there with Holiday, Connaughton, Grayson Allen, and Javon Carter, which I didn't love because like Carter is a good defender, but he's still small, right? Like he's still yeah. not he's still giving up a lot of size against Tatum and Jalen Brown. So it's not like I don't see the point of having him out there with those small ball lineups because he compromises the spacing anyway because he can't really shoot. And I, yeah, I just, I, as good a defender as he is, like a point of attack defender uh, against those big wings, I don't think he's making enough of a difference. So in the second half, they ran out that same lineup with Wes Matthews in Carter's place. And I just think that makes a ton more sense. There are definitely some ways that the, the Bucks can get their offense out of mud a little bit, but it, it's without Middleton, it's going to be a challenge against the Celtics defense, man. Like that's, Which that's is just what? the reality. Which is what we anticipated coming into the series, and and for a Bucks team that we already thought you know had those kind of creation issues or initiation issues. The the thing I thought was really interesting, and I know you pointed out in the post too, is how the Celtics stopped sending as much, if any, help to Giannis in Game Two compared to Game One, and how that help not coming and the way Horford and Williams are obviously guarding them. Not only is it like taking away the rim in general, but it's it's making him a mid range player and. As much as Giannis has improved from the mid-range, it's still kind of nightmare territory for him. Like, it's still not a dependable thing where you can, if you're a Bucks fan, you can't sit there and think like, that's fine. He's got a mid-range, you know, bag now. Like, he'll kill you from there. It's like, he could, but he also could not. It is not the same as him getting to the rim and doing what he usually does. And to that point, you put it in the post, but was it 19%? He's shooting 19% from the mid-range. I know it's only two games, and I think he was at 41% uh, from the mid-range during the regular season, but still... It, it speaks yeah. to the fact that that's still not his most comfortable spots. You're not going to get the consistent Giannis domination from those areas. And if the Celtics will gladly live with that. Look, if Giannis ends up catching fire from the mid-range and that's how the Bucks win this series, obviously the Celtics will still be devastated, but I think they can live with that. Yeah, I think so too. And I, he will shoot better. And that mid-range number, by the way, that includes floater range. So it's basically just two pointers outside of the restricted area. Okay. And Giannis is five for 26 on those shots in the series so far. <laughs> So he'll be better, but I think that the Celtics will continue to live with giving him those shots. And yeah, the big stat that jumped out to me was, okay, regular season, 53% of Giannis's shots came at the rim and 32% of them came from that area between the three-point line and the restricted area, right? In this series, 49% of his shots are coming from that mid-range area and only 41% at the rim. And I think regardless of the outcome in terms of like the process, the Celtics got to be really happy 
with nudging Giannis into a shot profile that looks like that. That's all positive stuff for the Celtics defense. And, you know, those are some things I feel like the Bucks can do to make things easier for themselves on offense. But the, the Celtics defense was really good in game one as well. Like they won game two in large part because they, they started to figure some stuff out on offense themselves after getting completely wiped out in game one. A big part of that was hitting threes. Like that'll that'll help. But I also thought they were just a little bit more intentional about what they wanted to do, like better about attacking Grayson Allen and other weaker Bucks defenders, getting Jalen Brown comfortable looks in the mid-range and like what a game he had. Um, and also just like the process by which they came by those threes. I feel like in game one, it was a lot of just like swinging the ball around the perimeter, a little bit afraid to penetrate sometimes. Whereas in game two, yeah, like uh, they went in there and got their shit sent back a few times. Like, like Brooke Lopez continues to be an absolute force as a rim protector, which is another reason I feel like if they can sort of play him off the floor offensively, that's huge. But I, I still thought like they were putting Giannis in a little bit more action, making him move more, getting a lot more of like drive and kick stuff where, you know, you know, clean catch and shoot threes that are coming off of like solid repeated drive and kick and like good offensive motion. Maybe it's like the trite cliche about the ball finds energy and everybody gets a touch and that helps. But I don't know, maybe there's something to that because yeah. they they shot the ball really well in that game too. And their offense looked pretty connected. Even if like some of the passing sequences were like the result of guys just passing up shots. Like Derek White, I mean, I don't know what's Man, happened to that guy's he's offensive looked game. really rough. Yeah, he's looked really rough. Yeah, which you know, was very sad for me because I, I've been a Derek White fan for a while and was really excited about the Celtics acquiring him. No, I thought he'd I mean, be a look, great we, fit there. And defensively, were. he we, has been. But We both were. We were both over the moon with that acquisition from their standpoint and considered them one of the winners of deadline week or day because of it. Yeah. He, yeah, offensively, he's looked rough, man. And then the last thing I'll say, and it, and it goes to the point about sending less help Giannis's way. Giannis got seven assists in game one to three-point shooters alone. Wow. He got zero in game two. And we talked after game one about how crazy it was that before garbage time, the Celtics got eight two-point field goals. I think it's almost equally crazy that before garbage time in game two, the Bucks shot 15 threes. Like that is wildly low yeah. for a, a game in, in the year 2022. And for the Bucks, especially a team that, even at full strength, when they do have also Middleton's like shot creation and, and kind of mid-range game, even then, a team that still very much relies on creating threes off Giannis's uh, drive and kick and penetration and getting to the rim, you take Middleton out of the equation, you'd figure that should be going up, if anything, right? Like they're more reliant now on either Giannis getting to the rim or Giannis, Giannis getting to the rim and the attention that takes off of others. For the number to be that low in a game without Middleton is even crazier to me. Yeah, I mean, there's something they're going to have to figure out. It's like how to generate those yeah. looks if if Giannis isn't isn't a like drawing a ton of attention to the ball and b not doing a whole lot when he is being guarded in single coverage. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's yeah. the, that's the incredible twin feat that the Celtics defense pulled off was like being able to limit Giannis in terms of his individual scoring and limit him as a playmaker and not really let anybody else on the Bucks get get going like that's that's really just hard to do so un unbelievable defensive team man that is just executing at a really high level all right you want to talk dubs grizz let's do it man so after game one 
we talked and I mentioned about how one of the things I was looking forward to coming into this series was seeing which of these two teams, if either one, actually had a chance of stopping the other team on the perimeter, right? Because there was a lot of talent on the perimeter and there's not a yeah. lot of ball- stuff. And then the Dude. one thing I talked about was like, forget the fact that, yes, Steph was outworking guys like John Bain defensively. If you look at the actual defensively capable perimeter players in the series, it was like Gary Payton on the Warriors. Dylan Brooks on the Grizzlies. Well, guess what? Neither one of them is going to play in game three because Dylan Brooks nearly killed Gary Payton the second in game two with a very reckless challenge in midair that left Gary Payton with a fractured elbow. I believe that's going to keep him out three weeks. He's done for the series. And Dylan Brooks has been suspended for game three because of it. So you take those two guys out of the equation. Also, I mean, terrible for Payton as well. Like this is a guy that has had just such a good year and an inspiring story. And is also going into free agency this summer. I mean, it's not the kind of injury, obviously, that's like a devastating blow to his like career. Thank God it wasn't because it could have been worse. But it's not like going to limit his earning power or anything like that because it's not like an Achilles or an ACL. But it is, it's just unfortunate all around. And it very well could have been a really, really terrible injury based on where that collision happened. That could have actually affected that earning power. So reckless from Dylan Brooks, he's going to serve the suspension. Anyway, you take those two guys out now, and uh, you've got what was already going to be an interesting series anyway that is now tied going back to the Bay Area. After game one, when I talked about that kind of perimeter battle, and we were saying how, you know, yeah, like Steph was at least outworking guys like Ja and Bain defensively, and if that was going to be the case, like this thing was done, especially because the Warriors seemed to have a decent game plan for like staying committed on the defensive glass, being disciplined, keeping the the Grizzlies' size advantage out of this series, or at least off the offensive glass. And then game two comes, and John Morant just explodes for 47 points in a way that I'd say is very Jaw-esque. And like a perfect example of that to me was the last, well, the second last possession for the Grizzlies of the game, but the last real possession, because their last one ended up with an intentional foul and free throws. But their last real possession in that game, I believe they were up two or three, and... They had the ball. They could have milked most of the clock and brought it down to the so like they end up with a shot. And even if they miss, it's still a one possession game, and they leave the Warriors almost no time. But the ball's in John Morant's hands, and John Morant stands for audacity, if nothing else. And so, what does John Morant do with like sixteen still on the shot clock and like twenty still left on the game clock in a game where you know his team's up by one possession? He gets into the middle of the lane. And then ends up taking this contested floater over Andrew Wiggins and sinks it. Just an insane level level of like calm and poise in that moment. And again, an audacity that is very jaw to his core. And it worked out because it went in and he capped off this tremendous performance in a way only he could. But I'm sitting there thinking like, man, if he, if he doesn't make that shot and the Warriors rebound it and end up with like plenty of time left to tie or take it, like, hey, that looks horrible, but it didn't. And that's Jaw, and that's why I love him, and that's why a lot of people love him and are entertained by him. Anyway, he was fantastic. Matchup looks a little different without Peyton and Brooks, I guess, but obviously the main characters are still in there. What did you see other than just you know Jaw's brilliance in Game 2 that maybe uh, reinforces the confidence you already had in the Grizzlies' ability to make this a series and potentially win it? What did you maybe see on the Warriors' side? This game went a lot of ways where like, if you're the Warriors, you're thinking, we're fine. What do you come out of that game thinking? Uh, I come out of it thinking that the Warriors are fine. Yeah. But uh, a few things. I mean, I, I had a note in here that just says cash hit nail on head, which was my way of telling you that when you said on the last episode that that was how you kind of 
saw the series shaking out or that's what you thought it was going to come down to was like which backcourt can defend the other's backcourt better like that is really the series right now it's just each team's best offensive guards going at the other team's weakest defensive guards over and over and over like there's a lot of mismatch hunting in this series you know less so maybe from golden state's end but still quite a lot considering what golden state's offense usually is and so i think that's that's super interesting and to your point about gary payton too i think he's probably out for the playoffs like i guess he could conceivably be back to the finals but i feel like i saw three weeks well yeah but that that will encompass the conference finals oh yeah basically yeah I mean, you know, I don't know. They might be hard-pressed to get past the Suns without him. But yeah, yeah, I just want to echo the sentiment that it really sucks for him. I'm not worried about like his his next contract or anything like that. I think the Warriors will probably do right by him and bring him back. Not even just do right by him, like do right by themselves because he's he's been great for them. They should bring him back. Um, But yeah, it's just for for a guy who's been on the fringes of the league for so long, bouncing around and, and finally found a home in like the perfect environment for him. And at the start of the season, he eked out like a 15th roster spot over Avery Bradley. And now a few months later, he is starting in the second round of the playoffs. Um, it just sucks for him. There's no two ways about it. And uh, it's it's just another example of like the, the line that Dylan Brooks toes, you know, we've talked about it before. Like his physicality is a gift and a curse in a lot of ways for the Grizzlies. And that was just an instance where, like, I don't think anybody is going out in these NBA games trying to hurt anybody. You know, if you if you want to call it dirty or you called it reckless. I, th- I don't think it was malicious. I don't think he went up there thinking, I'm really going to, I want to hurt this guy. But I think yeah. it was reckless. You know what I mean? I think something can be reckless without being purposely dirty. Right. And I think you could call a play dirty without saying that it was intentionally dirty. But just like, yeah, you got to do better at controlling yourself. Yeah. Okay. So I want to talk about how the Warriors are defending Jaw. Because I feel like a lot of the conversation around it has frustrated me a bit. I've seen people saying that, like, the Warriors need to change their approach. Like, they need to get more creative. They need to come up with something different, a different way to defend Ja because he's killing them. And I've seen people saying, like, well, well, the Wolves defended him really well. You know, the Wolves were loading up at him, putting two on the ball and pick and roll, like, showing a ton of help toward the middle and keeping him out of the paint. And... That's true. Like, I think the Wolves actually defended pretty well in that series. And that is the way that they chose to defend him. And they made him more of a playmaker than a scorer, which was a totally justifiable gambit to make. But, okay, so the Grizzlies offensive rating in this series with Morant on the floor is 111. Would you care to hazard a guess as to what it was in that series against the Wolves? With Ja on the floor. Yeah, one tennis. Yeah, I feel like it's not that far off from what it, from that. No, it was one fourteen point six. They scored, <laughs> they scored go, even much better. more efficiently against yeah. the Wolves with Morant on the floor than they yeah. currently are against Golden State. This is why it's frustrating to me because when you are trying to game plan for the best players in the world, you're always just going to be choosing the least bad option out of a series 100%. of bad options. Okay, you're giving so, something up people see 47 points and say, oh my God, the defense is getting carved up. Like, how can they let this one guy do to them? They need to adjust. And I'm just not sure that's true. Because first of all, the Warriors lost that game because they couldn't score enough. And they couldn't score enough because they turned the ball over 20 times and shot 18% from three, 18%. So with Morant, it's like what, what they're doing, and we talked about this after game one, is they're making a point of, 
not letting other guys get going and like Desmond Bain first and foremost. And, you know, apparently Bain's dealing with, was it a, is a back injury that he's dealing with? Yeah, I had that noted here too. Bain's got some back issue as well. So that's, you know, I guess maybe, is that part of the reason he's struggling possibly? Is that maybe a reason to not be selling out to slow him down if he's already limited? They're clearly going all out, I feel like, to slow him down. And, you know, you watch him like coming off of off-ball screens, they're sending a second guy at him. And I've seen people say that they need to send more nail help against Jaws drives. I don't disagree with that necessarily, but I feel like a big reason they haven't is that Bain is usually the guy who's spotting up on the opposite wing and they don't want to let him get a clean catch and shoot three. They would rather, instead of having that initial wave of help up top, they're just having the help come at the bottom, like right at the rim, essentially. And they get burned because Jock can hit floaters. Like that's, he he's going to do that. But he's shooting 52% at the rim in this series. And some yeah. of the layups he's made have been really difficult. So I'm like not, I said, even that floater he hit, that was audacious. He, like Wiggins contested it really well. Yeah. So like, like that's why I'm not ready to say that they need to like totally overhaul their approach. I mean, another thing with the Wolves is like what you give up when you send all that attention at the ball is like you leave yourself pretty vulnerable on your own glass. And we've talked about how important offensive rebounding is to Memphis. And guess what? Golden State was the second best defensive rebounding team in the league this season. Like they they are a team that can keep Memphis off of the offensive glass. They've done it maybe not the best job of that so far, but they give themselves a better chance to do it if they're not loading up on the ball the way that Minnesota was. Zoom out, big picture, right? Jaws averaging 41 points a game in this series. <laughs> like You say that and it sounds nuts. And it's like, oh my God, he is destroying the Warriors. But he's also doing it on a massive usage and solid, but not incredible efficiency. Not like something that's catastrophic for Golden State. He's at like 58% true shooting, which is definitely very good. But again, when you're talking about like your opponent's best player, one of the best players in the world, especially when he's shooting 39% from three, which you probably expect to regress, and you're also taking away all of these other things in conjunction with that, I think that's okay. You know, I, ju- I just don't think it's a big deal. I don't think the Warriors should overreact to that performance when they, you know, they can look at themselves and be like, well, Clay's shooting five for 22 from three in the series and Wiggins is two for 12. And Steph's only hit like 34% of his threes. I don't know that I actually see a whole lot of cause for concern. I actually will say they, they can probably strike a healthier balance in terms of not giving up some of the switches that they were giving up, especially when Jaw is just like torching them down the stretch of that game and going at Jordan Poole like over and over and over again. That's where I'm like, okay, if you're not going to show more nail help, which, you know, on top of the Bane thing, I think is is more difficult for them because... A lot of the time, the Grizzlies are just like emptying out the wings and running like one four flat. So there's nowhere to really bring that help from anyway. But if they're not going to do that, then at least I I think they got to make it a little bit more difficult and like not concede that switch as easily as they've been doing it. So, you know, with Poole in particular, but maybe also Steph a little bit because Ja got Steph a few times in that game. So that maybe that's like going under screens more. Although 
like the Grizzlies have done a lot of the thing that I want the Bucks to do with Giannis, where they're setting the screens down pretty low, and that makes it tough to go under. But unders or putting, you know, sh- doing the show and recover thing to avoid letting Poole get shredded the way that he's been getting shredded. There is always a downside. Being in rotation, especially when you're small, is like pretty precarious. But I think the Warriors can probably feel okay about that, knowing they have Draymond on the back line to to rebound and protect the rim. So I think that is a, a tweak that they can make. But, you know, apart from that, look, if, if Jaw's going to beat you with floaters and step back threes, I, I think you just have to tip your cap. Yeah. Are you worried about Clay at all? I mean, he hasn't looked great, even like movement-wise, I feel like, in this series. But then at the same time, it's like, okay, he, he, I think he's six for... His tw- he's six for 28 from deep in his last three games. And you com- combine that with the movement not looking great. I completely get that there's cause for concern. But the first four games to the playoffs, he was 21 of 42 from deep. The first four games against Denver, he literally took on average more than 10 threes a game and shot 50% from deep. So I'm hoping and I guess want to believe and, and think it might just be, okay, it's just a few games shooting slump. The thing that's making me more concerned, I'd say, than just the percentages the last three games is that mobility. It just doesn't look like Clay, you know, and understandably so. Yeah, he's not he's not the Clay of old defensively, that's for sure. Right. You're right. And, and I think, you know, in terms of maybe he's not as explosive in terms of creating separation offensively because so much of his game is predicated on off-ball motion. And if, yeah, if he's not getting that separation, then his shots are going to be a little bit more contested and maybe he doesn't have quite the same lift um, you know, I'm, I haven't dug into the biomechanics to try and figure out whether that's what's going on, but I, am I worried about him? I don't know if I would say worried because I just feel like, look, Clay maybe just is what he is at this point, which is a player that can still be really, really useful in this warrior system and help them out a lot, but is also not the guy that he once was. I still think that they can win a title with him yeah. in his current form. The thing with Clay is always like people have harped on his shot selection in this series. And yeah, that's that's going to come up when you go five for 22 from three. But that's always been Clay, man. Like he he takes a lot of bad shots, but he's always just been able to make them. So people don't complain about it. But when he's yeah. not making them suddenly, yeah, the shots that he's taking come under the microscope a little bit, yeah. uh, especially when that means he's taking shots away from this dynamic and ascendant guard in Jordan Poole, you know, or from Steph or from, I guess, anybody else that the Warriors might think is deserving of those shots. Like it, like Poole, especially, I think that's the guy who's like now, yes. like Poole is better than Clay Thompson. So yeah. if Clay is taking bad shots and, and those shots are not going to Jordan Poole as a result, then I can understand the frustration. Did you see that clip last week? I, uh, it was one of the Nuggets games when Poole dribbled his way into a kind of a contested shot and Clay was on the perimeter like waiting for it. And uh, I think Poole missed. And then you can see in the background, Clay like throwing his arms up in the air, like, ah. And I get like, I get the frustration from his perspective, but it's also to your point. I mean, Poole is the better and more dynamic offensive player right now, for sure. And that's one of those things, like I understand from Clay's perspective, probably coming back in and being frustrated, maybe that things aren't what they were both for himself physically and within the confines of the team. But I do think he's going to have to accept that based on what he is at this point and what Poole is. Who's going to help him accept that though? <laughs> you know, like yeah, that's, that's maybe where it gets a little bit challenging. But again, like I said before, the Grizzlies can hang in this series. Absolutely. I think it's going to continue to be close and competitive. 
but ultimately I still think it's advantage warriors. Like I, I think they're going to win the series. So straight up, they need to take better care of the basketball. And that's not just because it's hurting their own offense. It's also because it's fueling the Grizzlies offense, which as we've talked about ad nauseum is not very good in the half court, but can really kill you in transition. And the Warriors kicking the ball around the way they are prone to do is helping the Grizzlies avoid having to play half-court basketball. And that's just one very clear area in which this matchup is beneficial for Memphis. Like it favors them in a certain way because the Warriors are so turnover prone. You know, we talk about like how they have made a point of controlling the possession battle all season. They run up against a really good defensive rebounding team in Golden State. So maybe they can't do it to the same extent on the offensive glass. But in terms of the turnovers and what that means not only for them winning the possession battle, but also for just like having a healthy offense. That's something they're really taking advantage of. So it's, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you can say the Warriors have to clean that stuff up, but like that's always been their bugaboo. So I don't know if that's going to change. Right. You got any other thoughts that you want to share at this point or should I get to the fan shout out this week? I don't. I mean, look, yeah, we'll, we'll get to the other two series. I think on uh, next episode, whether that's, whether that comes out on Monday or Tuesday, probably yeah. on Tuesday. But by the time we get to those series early next week, it might really just be us talking about the Suns and the Heat because... <laughs> well, Embiid might... They're saying Embiid yes. might play tonight. So whether he can put in a good performance, you know, after suffering a concussion and while wearing a mask and while having a torn ligament in his thumb, I guess is another story. But yeah. if he does play and if he... It doesn't even matter if he plays well. I just don't... I hope that this puts to rest... I, you know what? I, I'm not even going to say it because I don't want to like valorize playing through injuries when like guys do that and sometimes jeopardize their long, long-term health to do it. So I'm not even going to go there, but just like, I, I just don't want to hear any more about like how Embiid is like a, isn't tough or is a crybaby or isn't like a playoff performer. doesn't like lay it all out there on the line and play with heart and do like everything for that team year after year after year. Like it's, it's tired and it's done. Look, even me, who, as you know, has criticized Embiid in in the past, the one thing I've never questioned with Embiid is his will and his want. You know, like, that's something that even going back to 2019, when people were, like, clowning and memeing him for crying after that um, Kawhi buzzer beater, I said from that night, like, there are things I criticized Joel Embiid about. That's never going to be one of them. I never go into a season, a game, a playoff series, whatever, doubting whether Joel Embiid wants it bad enough, you know? And the fact that he... The, the emotions poured out of him in that moment three years ago and he couldn't even make it to the locker room without the like devastation of that loss being evident was to me an example of that that will and that want and not anything else. And he, he should never, never have been and never be admonished for that. Other things I've criticized about his game or doesn't apply to that. And to your point, I get it. You know, we shouldn't be like hoping players play through injuries or whatever, but it will definitely be admirable. Not necessarily encouraged, but admirable. It's admirable that he's even trying to play at this point, like through all of this. But the one thing I'll say, and I was confused as hell about it. I tweeted about this too, is like, I don't understand. They had him listed as out while at the same time acknowledging he could still play. I was just sitting there being like, so he's doubtful. I just list him as doubtful. I've never seen this before where a player is listed as out while his team acknowledges that he might play. Like, shouldn't the designation out be reserved for when you are like 100% ruling up? To me, it's like, if you're going to rule a player out, it should be like, oh, then he can't play. Like, he's been ruled out. It's a weird thing. It doesn't matter. People listening to this might be like, we don't care. But 
I, I don't know. It was just really weird. It's not even that it bothered me. It was more so like I just didn't understand it. <laughs> you're ruling him out when there's a designation called doubtful. And then you're acknowledging he also might play. I don't know. I was just sitting there being like, oh, so he's doubtful, not out. Anyway, sounds like we're about at our wits end for this episode. Uh, but I do want to say, Wolfon, as I look at the clock and see that it, we're coming in under an hour. We did it, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> You've been waiting. You've been waiting to say it for so long and we just couldn't do it. We couldn't. Uh, we couldn't break the hour threshold, but we've, we've done, done it. it now. We've done it. All right. Fan shout out before we go. It's another one of those in-app comment uh, shout outs. And the reason I'm doing it is because the last time we did this, that we got a great email. We got a great email from the fan. And so when we get the shout out or reach outs, I'd say, or comments um, within the app, we don't get the same details that I usually get when I solicit the reach outs through social media where I can get like where you're listening from and how long you've been a listener. So I'm going to shout out right now, uh, score app commenter, F-R-A-I-J-S-H-E-2. Man, we're really <laughs> scraping the bottom of the barrel. No, no. You know what? We're not actually. We've got how many? We've got four banked actually right now. Okay. This was just the next one in chronological order that I wanted to get to. I don't, I don't even know what to call what I call Fraid She Two uh, did say that favorite general NBA podcast, straight facts, and two guys that like each other but also are willing to disagree, which I think a lot of people would say about our pod. So Fraid She Two, or however you want to be referred to, we're giving you a shout out this week because we're hoping that you actually reach out and we can give you a proper shout out as we did with another in-app commenter a couple weeks ago. So reach out uh, via Twitter, email, Instagram, whatever. And, and let us know where you're listening from and how long you've been listening. And we'll get you a more proper shout out. Also, uh, just wanted to say, I also saw you hot sauce three on that same comment thread. So maybe you want to reach out as well. But yeah, we've got a few more traditional shout outs banked for the next week and a half, two weeks. Um, but that should not stop people from reaching out so we can continue to bank shout outs going forward. Because we do want to, uh, we want to praise you for, allowing us to do what we do by supporting the show and supporting our work. So the usual call out for you to reach out, hit us up on Twitter at Joey underscore double Y O U at Joseph Cacharo email Joe.Wolfond at the score.com Joseph.Cacharo at the score.com hit me up on Instagram at Joe underscore 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 cash and let us know how long you've been listening, where you're listening from, what you like about the show, maybe what you don't. And I promise you, we will get you a shout out on a future episode. Until one of those future episodes, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the rock.